Picking up from Acts chapter 9, this is Acts 9 and verse 1. But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that he, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. <laughs> so he's asking permission to go and arrest these um, Christians and to bring them back to Jerusalem. So he needs permission. I, I don't know how that works. I guess it's permission to visit all these other synagogues and along the way if he finds any of these Jewish people like um, believing in Jesus, you know, you could catch them and then and discipline them. It's a it's a bit like I think back home in Malaysia, um, where we just had Ramadan. You know, if you do not follow the rules of fasting, you know, if you did something that was uh, breaking the rules for Ramadan, you know, you could find yourself in a tricky situation. It's something similar to that, but this is way way worse. I think way way more strict. And essentially, it says there he'll bring them bound to Jerusalem. He's going to tie them up, almost like prisoners. Yeah. So verse three. Now he went on his way. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, the city, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" Hmm. And he said, "Who are you, Lord?" And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. So Jesus (laughs) appears to Saul and knocks him to the ground, verse 4, falling to the ground, and speaks to him audibly, audibly, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Jesus says, why are you doing this to me? Why are you persecuting me? Why are you hurting me? And here is Paul going to persecute Christians. It's the same. You know, Jesus so identifies with the suffering, with the persecution of his people that essentially if you hurt them, you're hurting Jesus. And so Jesus is trying to stop Paul, but he's also trying to start this relationship with Paul. No, why are you doing this to me? He calls him Saul, calls him by his name. And he identifies himself. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Rise, go to the city. I will tell you what you're going to do next. Interesting. Mm. Uh, The men who were traveling with him, verse 7, stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So only he uh, could see Jesus. Saul rose from the ground. And although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So he was completely blind. He didn't eat anything. He didn't drink anything. And I think this blindness that's physical, I think it's symbolic of God's judgment upon his spiritual blindness. He couldn't see. He did not see what he was doing to God by persecuting God's people. And I think God wanted to open his eyes to help him to see this again of all people God would want to meet personally this is a guy who's killing Christians you need to think of not Paul the apostle later on you know as this pastor and a person who wrote a lot of the New Testament but actually Paul who's someone who really really hates Christians speaks out against them wants to hurt them and uh, I, I wonder if you can think of anyone like that maybe personally or even in 
public, you know, someone who is just so vocal in their hatred of God and of Christians. You know, I, I you know, all of them are idiots. You know, I wish they were all, you know, just shut up and you know not talk about Jesus. And that kind of hatred uh, might be indicative of their blindness. They might not be able to see God, and God wants them to be able to see. And it means that there is no one outside of God's reach. There's no one outside of God's salvation that He can change them and reach them and change them and bring them to Himself. Um, you know, it happened with Paul. You know, um, helps us to think who it is that God wants us to reach. It might not just be the easy pickings. You know, sometimes you think of church and evangelism and programs. I think of international ministry. Sometimes, sometimes I wonder if we think of it as easy ministry. You know, reach the people who are all coming to our church, all these, all these people who are coming to our church because they want to know God. This guy does not want to know God. <laughs> he hates God. He wants to come to church in order to lock up all the Christians. And God converts him. And he wants, I wonder if it's a challenge to us to think about who it is that God wants us to reach out with the gospel, who it is that we are reaching out to now, and maybe who we should be reaching out to even more. Not the easy cases, but maybe those who are hard to reach, those who are hard of heart. Uh, verse 10, now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. <clears throat> and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. <clears throat> and at the house of Judas, Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hand on him so that he might regain his sight. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry, just, just at lunch. Uh, not very healthy lunch. Yeah. Um, potato, fried potato croquettes. So not good for the esophagus. <clears throat> uh, but Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Mm. <laughs> so Jesus has chosen him to be this instrument, this tool, this medium by which he's going to bring his name, carry his name before Gentiles, kings, children of Israel. Very, very different demographics. Gentiles, people who are not Christians, people who don't know anything about Christians, you know, to Gentiles, outsiders to kings, people of high position, who at this point of time are persecuting Christians, you know, who are so high up, you, you, you can't even get access to them. God wants to use him to bring the gospel to them, but also to the children of Israel, the people who are traditionally, you know, they say that they know God, they follow God, but also themselves have rejected God because they're the ones who killed Jesus. So it's interesting to spread the different kinds of people God's going to use this one guy to speak to but also to speak through his suffering. He says, for I will show him how much he must suffer <laughs> for the sake of my name. So both has name in it, to, to bring his name, but to suffer for his name. Meaning is you're speaking the gospel and you're suffering for the gospel. That's what Paul, or at this point, Saul, before he changed his name to Paul, Saul is going to um, uh, speak the gospel, but also suffer for the gospel. That's Jesus's plan for him. 
verse 17. So Ananias, sorry, I've got ketchup on my Bible. Yikes. So Ananias departed and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that he may regain, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So this guy, Ananias, is sent by Jesus to lay hands on him and then to give him his sight back, to fill him with the Holy Spirit. And the thing that he says to him is brother. First words that he hears from this from this brother, he can't see him, he's blind. First words he hears from him is him calling him a brother. And that's so profound because Ananias didn't want to meet him. <laughs> Jesus says, go to Saul. He says, are you sure? I've heard many bad things about this guy. He's not the kind of guy you want to hang out with. He's the kind of guy you want to stay away from. And Jesus says, no, he's my chosen instrument. And Ananias, he gets it. He gets it. The one who is his enemy is now his friend, is his brother. And I think it, it means that you really need to see people through the eyes of Jesus. Maybe even the people whom you see with your own eyes as enemies, as the worst case, you know, the last person on earth who would ever become a Christian. If you see through Jesus' eyes, maybe he is your brother, your sister in Christ. And I think it says a lot about Ananias, that he's willing to obey Christ by loving his brother in Christ. Uh, verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. This is, this is Saul. He was staying with the Christians in Damascus. <laughs> Again, the Christians he was going to capture. He's now staying with them, staying in their houses. Very awkward. Um, <laughs> it must have been so funny, you know. He's now staying with them. Awkward for both of them. He, he, was, he said, I was supposed to come and kill you. Now you're giving me food helping me to stay in my house, in your house, yeah. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem for all of those who call upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in the strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So immediately, that's interesting, you know, immediately he goes into the synagogues to tell them, hey, you should be Christians as well. Let me tell you about Jesus. He proclaims the name, you know, keeps talking about Jesus as someone whose name Christians call upon. You know, we keep talking about Jesus. You know, what these Christians, how do you know Christians? They keep talking about Jesus. They keep telling you about Jesus. They don't just say God. They say how Jesus really is the son of God. That's why it says he's, he is the son of God. And there's something Jesus-centric about the preaching of the gospel. It's not just telling people to be good, telling how God is saving us, but Jesus, Jesus is the one whom God has sent the one who we need to call our Lord. And everything flows from that. You know, he saves us from our sins. He dies for our sins. He'll come back as our judge. He is the one whom we believe in. But there's something very Jesus-centric about what it means to preach the gospel and to call people to repentance. It's calling to turn away from anything else, everything else, and to turn to Jesus. And Paul is immediately preaching about Jesus. Jesus. 
you think about how awkward it is for him to stay with these Christians. He's supposed to go and kill them, but he's staying with them and calling them brothers. But now he's going to his former friends, the people who used to hate Jesus and saying, hey, I think you should trust in Jesus as well. It's almost, I'm trying to think of an equivalent. I mean, what would the equivalent be? Um, you think of it, former terrorist, <laughs> suicide bomber, you know, now going back to all his other friends and say, hey, you, you guys should become Christians. You should turn to Jesus as well. It's just so awkward. It's so strange. But it happens immediately. That, that's the surprising thing. It should not surprise us, but this is the surprising thing that Jesus does by turning him 180 degrees, this enemy into a friend, this outsider into a brother, this non-believer into an evangelist for Christ. That's all. That, that's all. Uh, verse 23, they tried to kill him. <laughs> verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Makes sense, makes sense. <laughs> he wanted to kill other people. Now people want to kill him. He's experiencing what it was like to really become a Christian. Yeah, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. You know, imagine people watch standing outside your door waiting, waiting for you to come out your door to go and kill you. That's how much they hated him. I think that's also how much they wanted him to stop, to stop preaching about Jesus. The reason for the hatred is because, not just of what he believes, but what he's saying about what he believes. He's actually make, doing some damage. You know, people are actually listening to this former terrorist, former persecutor who's now become a Christian. You know, kind of think, you know, who would listen to uh, a Christian? What kind of Christian would you Maybe actually someone who used to be a very strong non-Christian who now is speaking for Christ. You know, it makes sense why there's something attractive and yet intriguing and dangerous about that. That's Saul, whom they want to kill because he's now, he's, he, he's a real thing. He, he's actually speaking out for Jesus. Uh, so he hears about this, verse 25, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through, the, through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, what's interesting about this? Um, two things. Number one, actually, Paul, he talks about this experience later in Corinthians, talking about how embarrassing it was that he needed to be lowered down in a basket. So we think that he's like a hero moment, you know, saw, oh, you escaped this assassination attempt, or even that, how cool. <laughs> People hate you so much. You're such a good evangelist. But actually, uh, he was really humbled. You know, he felt ashamed to have had to go through this. And I think God was working through his heart. Maybe some of that shame was from when he used to do this to other people. And I think, again, that perspective, sometimes you see the evangelist, that pastor doing that really cool thing. Actually, it, it might be really, really difficult for them to do what they're doing. And that's, that's Paul's experience with this being lowered down the wall. But also verse 25, it says, his disciples took him by night. He, he just become a Christian, but he already has followers. He, had, he already has Christians who admire this Christian persecutor enough to follow him and want to save his life and to want to listen to his teaching. That's what disciples means. Disciples doesn't just mean your friend. But disciples means that actually, hey, you're actually teaching me about Jesus. And actually, you have something that, that, that's worth hearing. And actually, I think something worth emulating as well. And so soon in the process, you know, Paul's already preaching and teaching other people what it means to become Christians, including you know, these people I want to kill before. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I need to hurry up. Verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him. <laughs> For they did not believe that he was a disciple. 
But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had, Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Um, interesting, interesting. You know, Barnabas was the bridge between Saul and the apostles. All the apostles, all the believers in Jerusalem, capital of Christianity at this point of time, you know, they were afraid of this guy. There was no way he is coming to our church. There's no way you're going to invite him to speak on Sunday. Obviously, obviously. But Barnabas becomes his bridge. Because again, Barnabas again isn't really his name. His name Barnabas is a nickname. He's the son of encouragement. And he's always encouraging people to do what? Trust in God. Love your brothers. You know, be generous to one another in the way that you treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So, so it actually brings him to the apostles, vouches for him. And look at what he says. He declared to the apostles how he had seen the Lord, Jesus spoke to him, and how he was preaching in Damascus. Saul is not telling them how he became a Christian. Barnabas is telling the apostles how Saul became a Christian. And you imagine someone introducing you to a friend. Uh, actually, you know, last Sunday, uh, I went to the Chinese church in London and, you know, uh, I think they said, do you want us to introduce you? I said, no, I'll just say something on myself. But actually for someone to introduce you means that they know you well, means they trust you enough that they want their friends to trust you as well. And here is Barnabas who knows everything about Saul. Everyone else doesn't want to know anything about him, but he's actually found out how Jesus appeared to him, how he spoke to him, and even heard about how he was teaching about Jesus in Damascus. It, it's remarkable how much Barnabas has invested in learning about Saul and introducing him to the apostles. It's really incredible. Barnabas, you know, you might not be Billy Graham, but you can be Barnabas. You might not be like, some highbrow pastor or whatever, but you can be a Barnabas. That means, you know, imagine you have friends who've, um, you're, uh, maybe they want to know more about Jesus. They want to grow in their knowledge of Jesus, but you have, maybe you, you, you have some, you know, some resources, like some books, or maybe you've read something in the Bible that they haven't read. You can introduce it to them. And that's all Barnabas. He, he's just an introducer. He says that kind of encourage you who always something has something positive from God's word about God's will to, to say to you. And that's enough. That's enough. It's, it's just being that bridge between your friends and God. I think that, that's amazing what Barnabas is able to do here. Uh, verse 28, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Uh, well, it looks like the apostles uh, trusted him, gave him the right hand of fellowship. So allowed him to say, hey, go ahead, go and, go and do this. And he did this in Jerusalem. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, uh, Greek-speaking people, but they were seeking to kill him. Every, everyone wants to kill Paul. But it's a sign of faithfulness. You know, everyone wanted to kill Jesus. Everyone wanted to kill the apostles. Now everyone wants to kill this kind of like new apostle. Well, uh, this, this person, this messenger from Jesus is a sign of his faithfulness in actually speaking out the right gospel to essentially the wrong people, you know, the Hellenists. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. I think they were afraid for his life. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. 
and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Ah, okay. This is a very big picture moment because back in Acts chapter 8, the church was being persecuted. It was being destroyed. Now, two chapters later, the church is at peace and it's growing again. What was the turning point? What was the turning point? The turning point is God converting one guy. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? What does it take for God to bring peace and growth back to the church? It's not a program. It's always, always a person. You know, here is God converting this enemy of God. And it's almost as if it convicts even the people who are trying to persecute the Christians. I said, wow, you know, how did God reach that guy, that guy who used to be the one in front leading the charge against the Christians? How, how did God convert, or why would God even be interested in saving someone like Paul? Well, he did. And as a result, the persecution stopped. You know, it, it's, it's so obvious the link between Paul's conversion and the church's growth. Well, one guy uh, resulting in, I think it almost looks as if he took all the heat, all the hatred that was on the whole church was now being poured out on, on, on this former enemy of the church. And yeah, yeah um, and, and the church all throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, it shows that the church had grown not just in, in Jerusalem, but now Galilee is up north. And then Samaria, you know, the area in between the half cousins of the Jews, even there were churches there. You know, it's interesting how the church had grown because of this persecution. Yeah. And God, God is God, you know, can use everything, including the tough times to grow his church. Verse 32, now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and he turned to the Lord. Again, the miracles are so similar, so similar to what Jesus used to do. Pick up your mat and walk, Jesus said to the paralyzed man. Peter says the exact same thing. Again, authenticating the office of the apostles because the apostles are not just doing miracles, but they're doing the same miracles, the same signs, the same message is being preached by them that Jesus used to preach, Jesus used to do when he was alive in his ministry. Verse 36, now there was in Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. <laughs> she was this really good lady. She died. That's how he introduces her. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So um, Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, he took them. They took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping, showing tunics, other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with him. It's so strange. There's Peter, look at this shirt that Dorcas made. Look at this thing that she knitted. Well, well apparently it reminded them of her. <laughs> But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, turning to the body. He said, Tabitha, arise or get up. Or the same phrase is used of the resurrection, being raised up. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. 
and she and he gave her his hand and raised her up again that raising language then calling the saints and the widows he presented her alive almost to see to say as if he's giving her back to them there's so much here that's similar to the account and i think it's mark chapter five where uh the lithical uh, 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 let me check, check on this. Uh, if you remember back in chapter, Mark chapter 5, Jesus heals this young girl and then goes in the room, puts them all outside, and then uh, raises her from the dead. So again, Peter is repeating or um, uh, reflecting the miracle that Jesus did. And there, interesting, uh, he, she is called Talitha, and here she's called Tabitha. So there, there's a lot of connection. It's almost like saying, hey, this is almost like what Jesus used to do when he raised someone from the dead. And it's again authenticating Peter's ministry. Sorry, there's an alarm that's just going on outside. Uh, hopefully that's not too distracting. Yeah, it's just stopped. But what's happening here, um, uh, it became all known throughout Joppa. Many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with Simon a tanner. And it ends there. It ends there. Now, something very interesting, very, very interesting happens at the end of this chapter because it mentions the place Joppa. Joppa again and again and again. Joppa. It's a port city. Uh, it's, it's a modern-day Jaffa where you get Jaffa cakes, you know, Jaffa cakes with the, the orange jelly inside and the, and the cake on the bottom and the chocolate on top. Jaffa or Joppa was a port city and he's staying there with this place in a place where someone is tanning skin. So tanning skin means it's taking the animal, taking the skin and putting out in the sun so it dries up. And the idea is that this is an unclean place full of unclean people, religiously speaking, because he had carcasses. And Peter was actually at a turning point whereby he was starting to hang out with very unclean people. So that's the significance of being in Joppa. And in the Old Testament, if you know the Old Testament, Joppa should immediately make you think of the prophet Jonah. Jonah, because when Jonah runs away from God, from God's word, he goes to Joppa. He goes down to a port city because it's a port city that gets a boat and he runs away from God. And here, it's almost as if Peter is reenacting the steps of Jonah because God is going to call him to speak to these unclean people that he's hanging out with. But he is maybe hesitant. And we'll see that in the next chapter. I don't, I don't think I'll do that in this session, but we'll see that this is a turning point for Peter as it was for Jonah in the Old Testament. And the turning point has to be with, has to do with speaking the gospel to people who might be unclean, people who are Gentiles, people who are outside your circle of friends. And it takes almost this act of God to get you to turn in that direction and to face them and to bring them the gospel. That's how it ends. You know, it begins with Saul, the one who's turned back to God, this enemy that's turned back to God. But it ends with Peter, this, this apostle of God who's doing all these miracles for God, also having to turn back to God. And it's going to happen here in Joppa. Yep, so that's Acts chapter 9. Uh, thanks for joining me. This has been the Daily Bible Reading Show. I'm just trying to practice, <laughs> trying, trying to familiarize myself with the passage for this overview. I'm going to be doing this Saturday at the Fuller Project. So thanks for joining me. Take care and God bless. Bye.